Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. All right, so today we're going to be talking about some controversial issues, um, talking about the show The Chosen, which has kind of taken Christian entertainment by storm, so to speak, and talking about things relating to the Second Commandment, idolatry, uh, and should Christians, and ultimately should Christians even be watching The Chosen, or shows like it. Uh, so I think that's a, a good discussion for today. There's a I know in my own preparation for this episode kind of took me down some uh, rabbit trails and I was able to, you know, kind of dive into these issues more, especially in the second commandment uh, and look at areas that I hadn't really looked at before or considered in great depth. So I think that this was beneficial for me and I hope it'll be beneficial for you as uh, we talk about this today. Uh, certainly an important topic, I think, as we're looking at, you know, portrayals of Jesus and, uh, you know, things like this surrounding Christian entertainment, some of the problems that come from a show like this. So uh, hopefully this is a beneficial discussion. So The Chosen, what is it? Uh, it's a show that was created by Daryl Jenkins. Daryl Jenkins, from what I read, is the son of the creator of the Left Behind series. I think it's um, Jeffrey B. Jenkins, correct? I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's his name. Left Behind series, another one of those Christian entertainment series started in book form. Then, you know, Kirk Cameron plays in, uh, you know, movies that were made on the <clears throat> on the series. And there's been, you know, spinoffs, remakes or whatever the case might be. So definitely the Jenkins name is a... Uh, definitely a popular name in Christian entertainment. But The Chosen is a show really about Jesus and really looking at, supposed to be looking at Jesus through the eyes of his followers. Uh, this is the show's mission. Uh, I think this was from either Angel Studios who produced the show or The Chosen's official website, one of the two. But it says, Quote, the Chosen, the first multi-season show about Jesus's life, hopes to take you deeper into gospel stories by retelling and expounding on the character and intentions of Jesus and those who knew him. So the show is not just about Jesus's life. It's also looking at lives of those surrounding Jesus, looking at cultural areas. So it's it's a little bit different, I think, than uh, maybe other portrayals of Jesus's life like you uh, like the portrayal of, of Jesus and the passion of the Christ. You see very, it's very focused on Jesus's death, the last 12 hours of his life. Uh, and, and you had different portrayals of the story of Jesus uh, in different venues. But this one, I think, takes a broader approach to the story of Jesus, not just focusing on Jesus. So <clears throat> that's what I'm, uh, that's kind of my understanding based on what I've researched on this. Now, it's interesting, the actor who plays Jesus in the show, uh, his name is Jonathan, uh, he's not strictly a faith-based actor, which I, I found kind of interesting. Uh, he's played in shows such as Law & Order, Chicago Med, uh, so he's been around the block in terms of acting, but definitely not an exclusive faith-based actor. Now, according to the official website of The Chosen, uh, the actor for Jesus is, interestingly enough, a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, and I've seen him as well in 
uh, ads for uh, the Hallow app, which I, I think is a Roman Catholic prayer app, meditation app. And he's advertised that. And he definitely shows some Roman Catholic influences. Like he'll do, you know, this whole thing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, the, and kind of showing his colors pretty clearly of where he's from. Uh, so, you know, you start to see where some of the background of the show is influenced by. And the show was also... Uh, I guess the rights were bought by the CW channel, which is a pretty big platform, uh, especially, you know, for those of us who are into the superhero nerdy stuff, uh, they they host a lot of DC comic uh, themed shows. Uh, so this show, The Chosen, was able to get a pretty big platform, not just online, but also on uh, mainstream media through the television channel, the CDW channel so you know you see these this platforming of of the chosen quite a bit uh and i've also heard that angel studios has uh you know it has mormon influence at least i you know and i don't know how true that is um I, i'm not saying that those who've insinuated that are, are wrong but i think that there are um you know from what i understand there are mormon influences that are within it, that Angel Studios production company that may have uh, come into play here. Federal, hey brother, how you doing? Hope you're doing well. Hope you enjoy the show today. Welcome. All right, so some problems with the show. Now I want to play a clip. I mean, there. <laughs> I, I think as we go through our discussion today, you're, you're definitely going to see there are problems with the show. Um, but I think... One thing I, I found interesting in my research about the show The Chosen is how much material the show's creators have put out there in terms of trying to discuss at least some of the theological content, but also talking about how the show relates to scripture. Uh, even though I don't agree with uh, you know how they try to justify the show in relation to uh, scripture, I do appreciate that they at least tried to address the issue. So they don't just blow it off and say, ah, you know, we don't care if the show seems to portray, you know, an extra biblical Jesus or whatever the case might be. It seems that they did care that the show portrayed Jesus accurately. At least they tried to, uh, or, and at least try to make it mesh with the, absolute rule of scripture. So I want to play a clip here that kind of talks about this a little bit put out by it's on the official the chosen's official YouTube channel. And this is going to be uh, Daryl Jenkins, the creator of the show, interviewing some theologians. I think he has a Roman Catholic, a Jewish man and an evangelical. And he's specifically interacting with the evangelical man. And he's going to be discussing uh, kind of the show's relation to scripture. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I do think that this is key part of the to this discussion about the chosen. Now, this will be an audio clip. It is a video, but in the interest of not offending anyone because there are portrayals of Jesus in here, uh, I didn't want to play that and put that on the screen just to be safe uh, for people's consciences. So I extracted the audio and I'll just play the audio so you can hear what's going on here. So let me pull this up here. So for those of you who listen on the audio side, generally, uh, you know, there's nothing to see here. 
Um, but if you did want to go look it up on YouTube, uh, it's there. And the, the title of it is, Is It Okay to Add Stories to the Bible? Okay, so we're going to take a listen to this. You're certainly not attempting to add another book to the Bible. Dr. Hoffman, as you know, in the evangelical world, uh, we're very focused on the words and the literalness of Scripture. Uh, we tend to err on the side of, of the literary and the literal. And I've heard from people who, uh, when they hear about the show, say, well, Revelation says to not add to Scripture. And so we are uncomfortable with the fact that you are adding to Scripture. And, and Father Duffy may be okay with imagination, but there's no need for it because you have the Bible, and I'm just going to stick to the Bible. Why is it okay, if it is, uh, to ignore what John said in the book of Revelation and add to some of these stories with some backstory? Well, you're certainly not attempting to add another book to the Bible. 100% uh, correct. Yeah, and the, the people who... Uh, only want to read the Bible won't be watching this series, right. so so th you don't have to worry about those kind right. of complaints. Right. Um, yeah, I actually think that uh, evangelicals' desire to honor the Word of God um, is it's got pluses and minuses. Um, the strength, of course, is they're trying to avoid errors that we've seen happen in church history where things do get added to Scripture, where doctrines are added to Scripture. Now, I do appreciate this, right? I do think that this is helpful. He's he's acknowledging that there is a place for being cautious and careful when dealing with these things, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes out as he moves along here. And I think as we kind of move along here, you'll see what I'm talking about. That actually distracts from the truth that God gave us in written form. Unfortunately, the pendulum swings to the point where now they're almost worshiping the Bible right. instead of the God who gave them the Bible. Interesting. And so uh, bringing us back to being whole people, including a God-given imagination, I, I think this is a, a, an important thing for us to be doing, even as we read Scripture. But having our imaginations controlled by Scripture, which, as you've said, uh, you're trying to do that with this series. Um, so it almost seems like, at least to me, that he's saying you can't really have a full understanding of the stories in Scripture without using your imagination. You can't have a you know this holistic picture of the Bible without using your God-given imagination which would include filling in, obviously would include filling in the gaps where the Bible, in the Gospels at least, in this case, because they're dealing with Jesus, where the scriptures have been silent, right? So I think you have a problem here with that, and I think we'll, as we talk about the sufficiency of scripture here in a moment, I think we're going to see that come out even more. Do I really need my imagination to be able to help me to understand the scriptures uh, outside of what God has revealed in his word. That seems to be where he's going here. So let's continue. So I think what happens with evangelical readings of scripture is it all becomes flat and there's, there's no um, relatability to these characters in the Bible because they're just these words on the page. And oh, of course we know that story, here's how it goes. Right. But there's, I have nothing in common because I live a three-dimensional life, not black and white letters on a page. So I can't understand, I can't relate to these people on the page unless I see it visually presented to me. 
I, I think us as Reformed Christians should really be cringing right now at, at the problem with that and some of the issues that stem from that kind of thinking. So what a film series like this does for us is it reignites our imagination and helps us relate to what's written on the page, um, recognizing that, yeah, our imaginations need to be controlled by the page, right. but still, wow, this Mary is a real person. Right. <laughs> uh, she had real problems, kind of like my problems. And I, I don't know of any Christian who ever thought that Mary didn't have problems like our problems or that she wasn't a real relatable person. Uh, I don't think that is the case at all. And the, the scriptures, even though we can certainly enjoy them because they come from God, the scriptures are not ultimately meant to be entertainment for us to be able to relate to the person in the same way some other story might. Again, we can enjoy them and be entertained by them in a certain sense because they are from God and they are God's word and it's good. We can enjoy it. But uh, treating it, I think, in that that same base category as he is, I don't think is is very helpful here. We can relate to Scripture in as much as God has revealed to us in his word. I don't need a television show to be able to do that. And what about everybody thousands of years, 2,000 years in church history who didn't have that luxury of that technology or that ability? Were they worse off because they didn't have that ability to be able to relate to the people on the page, so to speak, if they didn't know these people directly? I mean, that that's the implications of this that you get into. You get in all kinds of thorny issues. So... Uh, we press on. There's only a couple minutes left. Um, yeah, that draws people in, and uh, maybe they'll start reading their Bibles more. Right. Well, we've heard that from believers. Oh, so now this is a way to help people read the Bible, right? Oh, maybe they'll read their Bibles more if they watch a show like this. Oh, yeah, they they don't need the sufficient word preached every Sunday. They don't need to be in the house of the Lord where they're actually being fed the word and sign and symbol and in preaching. No, 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 no. Is maybe this is a way we can get people in the door, right? Uh, you can hear the pragmatism start to come out very clearly. So some of the dangers starting to rear their heads of media like this. We're not careful. I mean, I've done a few test screenings and someone said, you know, I like a lifelong believer. I've heard this from many of them have said this made me want to go back and read my Bible and, and kind of figure out even more. And, and then when they read it, they said it, it was even more enriched. Because I, I, when I saw Matthew's name in Scripture, I started to identify with him, or, and 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 realize that, oh yeah, he, like you said, he was human. He had a uh, one one quick thing I want to I want to say before I, I bridge to a question I have for you, Rabbi Jason, is uh, in episode one we see Simon go home to his wife, and they kiss, and they tease each other, and they have this conversation. While I was shooting that scene, I thought to myself, I've never seen a married couple kiss in a Bible show before. And then I realized I've never seen a married couple in a Bible <laughs> show before. Um, and where did I draw when I was writing that scene? You know, what did I draw from? So there's biblical context from what we can see about Simon's personality. Okay, we know nothing about his wife's personality. So gleaning from that and gleaning from my own life as a, as a married man, I know what marriage life is like for many people. That informed us as much as the biblical context and the historical context. So... And then it goes on to play the scene he's talking about here. So I'm going to impose my own understanding of what marriage looks like onto the scriptures, because, of course, scripture, although it gives us, you know, pictures of marriage in the scriptures, it doesn't say specifically what Simon's marriage was like. 
or does it identify his wife, at least in the Gospels? So it's very interesting. Now you can start to see the subjectivism creep in. Oh, now here's my understanding of what this looks like. Here's my experience. And now I'm going to impose that onto the story of Jesus. And I think you can see here that there are definitely issues with this as it relates to sufficiency. I hope you can see that already and start to see these things in our minds. Now, he talks about uh, this evangelical man. I can't remember his name. I, I should have written it down. Uh, he says that we're to let our imaginations be regulated by the page, right? But the question is, are you really regulating yourself by Scripture if you think it is important to use mediums like this to relate to the people on the pages of Scripture? If you think this is important and the Scriptures don't give you the sufficient knowledge to be able to understand these things as it relates to good works, because that's really what the Scriptures are about, it's equipping the man of God to be able to do what is pleasing in his sight, 2 Timothy 3.16, but I'd love to know how one can truly be regulated by the scripture if indeed they can't have a better experience with the text without something like this being put in front of them. You can start to see the problems that come up there, right? And this doesn't mean that we're biblicists and we don't you know, use tradition and we don't use commentaries and extra biblical things. That's not what I'm saying. But this is very different than that. This is not the same as a commentary where when biblically consistent is merely bringing the word itself instrumentally, it's just teaching what the word is either saying expressly or implicitly. But a medium like this is taking liberties with the text and brings in extra biblical ideas into the text since it is seen as a way to help people relate to the scripture and a way that people can uh, use it to help them identify with the characters in scripture. So without it, essentially what they're implying, and they might not be trying to say this, but this is the at least the logical conclusion of what they're trying to say, is that without these things, you're worse off. You don't have a holistic Bible experience if you're not using your imagination to help you relate to the people on the page and to identify with the people on the page. That's the implication of what we got here. That has, and that has dangerous implications for the sufficiency of Scripture. So we got to be really careful when we're looking at things like this. And unfortunately, I think this is where you see a lot of these things go because you have such a low view of the text in the first place. And again, I appreciate that they tried to address these issues because it does show that I think Daryl Jenkins does have a high view of Scripture. And he's he's really trying, I think, to make them work together. He's not just throwing it out and saying, I don't care what the Scripture says. I'm going to do what I want. He's really trying to make it work. And I do applaud him for that. But I think he does a terrible job at doing that. <laughs> I don't think he, he makes it work at all. And at the end of the day, you end up neutering Scripture instead of holding it to its proper place. And I think that uh, the way he's presenting this medium of the chosen is not helpful here. So I think from, you know, you can already see some of the theological foundations here. But man, when I was researching this, just... The plethora of material that I was able to find just from the creators of the show to be able to address like this interview and their websites are very detailed with, you know, here's why we did this. Here's uh, what the actor says about this. Here's X, Y and Z. Here's some theological discussions. So I could really, you know, I had a lot of material to pull from to be able to, uh, you know, discuss this today. So, again, they're, I think they're really trying to make these things work, but I don't think it 
it end up it ends up working at the end of the day. Now, speaking of artistic license, they openly admit this is from the Angel Studios website. It says, "quote The Chosen stays true to the details that are in the text of the New Testament. Each episode takes artistic license to fill in the many blanks where the text does not go into detail, but this artistic license is all feasible considering." the details that are provided, end quote. And I think for me personally, this is the biggest problem of any Jesus show, The Chosen or otherwise, uh, is the fact that artistic license must be taken for it to work. If you're going to make it work, you have to take artistic license because the scriptures are not a screenplay, okay? A screenplay that's going to say, well, this person walked over here. And this person sat down and he looked over at this person. He looked up at the sky and smiled or whatever the case might be. You just don't see that because that's not what's intention was. And so I think when people try to make these things into screenplays, you're going to have to make some sort of artistic license unless you're being so rigid with trying to stick with what the text is saying uh, that, you know, you're, you're going to almost have a robotic, um, you know, methodology or portrayal of, of Jesus at that point. But again, the scriptures are not meant to be a screenplay. So you don't have all these details that they're trying to fill in that I think would be needed in order for the story to work properly. So you have, you know, maybe Jesus with a specific type of personality in the show. We don't know what his personality was like. The scriptures don't tell us. It just gives us really what he's saying and some of the things that he did, but it's not necessarily identifying him. You know, you couldn't put him in some sort of Myers-Briggs personality uh, category, so to speak, just because the scriptures don't give us enough detail to be able to do things like that, right? So I, I think you run into dangers if you're not careful because you can mislead people, right? Oh, especially with the words like in the interview. Oh, with Matthew, I can identify with Matthew because of what I see in the show. Well, now if you portray Jesus in a specific way that takes artistic license, that's not either accurate with the text or just completely, you know, made up, you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have problems where you can mislead people because now people can identify with the text that particular portrayal of Jesus and his personality and think, oh, wow, I'm going to read the text in light of what I know from the show. Right. That's a that's a problem. That is a huge problem. We are to believe in the biblical Jesus based on what scripture is revealed, and it's actually uh, paramount for your eternal soul. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So the implication, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. The implication is if you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, you're not born of God, right? Well, what is Jesus the Christ? It's the God-man, the incarnate Son of God, right? The Word incarnate, taking on human flesh. If you don't believe what the scriptures say about that, you ain't a Christian, that's what he's saying here. So it's actually dangerous, I think, to take artistic license with Jesus in stories like this because it can and probably will mislead people due to people being immature, maybe even people not even being Christians and just looking for something in an experience in the biblical world and identifying Jesus with this. Instead of starting with the biblical Jesus, 
and moving on from there. So we have to be really, really careful about things like this because you end up in that area where scripture is just put off to the side and an artistic portrayal, artistic license Jesus is now the uh, the lens by which you view him in the scriptures. And that is not a place you want to be, especially if that Jesus is portraying blatantly contradictory things about him in the show versus the text. And, I, and I'm going to talk about an instance of that in the show. And there might be other areas where it's blatant. I, I haven't seen the whole show. Uh, I did watch some of it so that I could prepare for today. Uh, but, you know, it, there is at least one egregious place that uh, where they took artistic license that blatantly contradicts the text. Talk about that in a second. So we, we have to be careful. Now, this is from the actor who plays Jesus, Jonathan. Okay, this was from an interview from the official website, thechosen.com or whatever it is, the official website of the show. They were doing an interview with Jonathan who plays Jesus, and this is from the interview. Quote, in just about any interview Jonathan has done, he's offered up his appreciation for how the show is not afraid to do. How the show is not afraid to, in his own words, delve into the possibilities of what Jesus's humanity could have been like. He also loves how, quote, the show's not limited to two hours to try to cram everything in. That there's the opportunity to let the story of Jesus breathe a little bit. Now let that sink in a second. This is the guy who plays Jesus in The Chosen. So, he is excited to do the show, right? He is an appreciation for how the show is not afraid to dive into the possibilities of what Jesus's humanity could have been like. So he's saying that he appreciates how the show takes artistic license. Hey, it could have been like this, could have been like that. Yeah, that's good. And you're you're letting the, the story of Jesus breathe a little bit. It's not crammed into two hours. Well, my response to that, you, you mean breathe by cramming in all this stuff that isn't in the text? I'm sorry that the Bible is too concise for your liking, that you think we need to let the story of Jesus breathe a bit and explore the possibilities of, where the text does not say anything, the fact that that is a priority to him and not sticking with the actual text of Scripture, I think is telling in terms of where this show goes. And just, again, from having seen some of the show myself in preparation for this episode, it takes a whole lot of artistic license. I mean, it goes, um, the first, at least the first two episodes, uh, have nothing to do with Jesus and actually have to do with build, kind of character and world building before getting to Jesus. So you see looking at different characters that are going to end up in Jesus's life. Um, and I, I think that there are, you know, problems with that. I mean, like we've talked about already, just but the artistic license, it was just kind of egregious. So like how much they were putting in there that just was not in the text that they had to make up in order to set this stage for their story that they're portraying here. It was, it was kind of, it was definitely interesting. Okay. So now I think, like I mentioned before, looking at the theological issue that I think is blatantly contradicted the text. So this was, this is one that I've known about for a little bit now. And that's been going around uh, because of how egregious it was. Uh, but I watched the clip it's on YouTube. You can find it there if you want to go watch it. This is from season three, episode three of the show. 
Jesus is teaching at what appears to be a synagogue, and he's reading from Isaiah, okay? And the episode is supposed to be covering Luke 4, 16 through 28, okay? And he teaches some things that make the rabbi uncomfortable, and the climax goes to Jesus saying, I am the law of Moses. And, you know, the, the synagogue gets in an uproar, and people are freaking out, and he said, I'm the law of Moses, and, and it's definitely starting to ruffle people's feathers, at least here. Okay. Now, what's very interesting about this scene, because we know the scriptures don't say that Jesus is the law of Moses. We know the scriptures say that he fulfilled the law of Moses. It's not the same thing as saying he is the law of Moses. But what's very interesting is Angel Studios, the producers of the show, the production company who made the show, on their website, about this particular line in this particular episode, they say this, quote, According to scripture, Jesus obeys the law of Moses perfectly and fulfills the law completely. But he doesn't say that he is the law of Moses. End quote. I thought this was really interesting that they just openly admit that this isn't a biblical line at all, that this completely is artistic license, while admitting that Jesus said some com something completely different theologically. That is very interesting to me that they just they just wear it on their sleeve. Yeah, we're this is not in the Bible, guys. And just let's we're going to clarify just to be clear. Here's theologically what this means. But why in the world would you portray Jesus as saying something he didn't on the subject in relation to the law and not adapt or quote what he did say? And I think this could mislead people. I mean, who's sitting there checking your average person who's watching a show like this? Who's sitting there checking these things and going, yeah, okay, that's biblical. That's not biblical. That's biblical. That's not biblical. Do you think your average evangelical is sitting there comparing what's being said with scripture? Probably not. They're probably just watching it and assuming that these things are true. And I think just given the gravity of what we're talking about here, the God man, the incarnate son of God, you're going to have a greater responsibility on your hands because you're teaching these things and you don't want to mislead people. And you're just going to put in something that you know is not biblical in any way that actually contradicts the text and put in a key theological difference here, saying I am the law of Moses versus I fulfilled the law of Moses. That has huge theological ramifications. And especially understanding, people need to understand what that means about fulfilling the law of Moses in relation to their own salvation, for crying out loud. So you're just going to leave that out and put something completely made up in there? Uh, that's dangerous. I, I don't understand why they decided to do that, why they didn't just put in what the scripture actually said and had something contradictory. But in terms of a, you know the theological issues, that's the one that I found that I think stood out the most. Now, I, you know, I, I haven't gone and looked at exhaustively all the issues necessarily of with the show, but that one I knew about and it definitely uh, stuck out to me. And I dug into that one a little bit more. Uh, and especially since they admit that it's not biblical and they had to go out of their way to clarify it just was kind of like, wow. Okay. All right, guys, that's interesting. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that. If you uh, didn't actually, you know, think it was biblical or not, I just I just find that very very interesting and and kind of unsettling. Um, but those are some of the, you know, some of the issues with the show itself. Now, talking about some of the issues surrounding shows like Jesus, what about the second commandment? 
Now, this is probably the biggest issue that people have with media like this, especially in reform circles, as it relates to the second commandment. Oh, you know, portraying Jesus is a second commandment violation. We can't have that. Uh, you know, it's sin, whatever the case might be. It's a violation of God's law and shouldn't be participated in. Okay. That seems to be the general argument that you see in reform circles for being uh, for not watching things like this. So let's take a look at this. This what the second commandment is is really about here. So the second commandment, we can see this at least in Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So notice what is happening here. Uh, the commandment is forbidding the worship of images, not the mere making of images. That's, a, that's an important distinction to make, as well as the general principle of doing things that God has not prescribed uh, in his worship. So we're not to do things that he has not prescribed for his worship, which would also include the making of images of him uh, in, in, you know, in terms of what we're to make. Okay, so this has to do with making God into a creature. Uh, and of course, when we need more clarity, the Reformed, at least Westminster Savoy, Second London Baptist Confession, we need more clear understanding in a particular passage. We go to places that are speak more clearly on the topic, right? That's uh, a Reformed understanding of hermeneutics. So we look at other places, Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19. Take heed, or take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. So God is invisible. God is not corporeal, meaning he doesn't, he's not fleshly according to his divine nature, right? So God didn't give them a form in order for them to understand and be able to make uh, images out of, right? Why would man make God like corruptible creatures to worship? Okay. And we see this even brought out more in Romans 1, uh, you know, with the famous section on the wrath of God. We'll read some of this here. Uh, uh, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they may be what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, Paul is laying out the nature of wicked man here. They know God exists. They see him in general revelation. 
through creation, in the works, the effects of God's works in the world. We see those things uh, happening here. And yet wicked man, what does he do? He suppresses the truth, right? He pushes the truth down. And he wants nothing to do with the true God. So what does he do when he wants to make images? Paul says what he does here. Paul says what he does here. He makes the incorruptible God into corruptible creatures. That's what man does when he wants to make images to worship. So Paul is giving us the essence of what wicked man is doing here. This is what violating the second commandment looks like, right? And he's really telling us what's going on behind the scenes here in man's hearts and their intention and their will. Instead of worshiping the true God who has revealed himself, man in his suppression will twist God to be like himself, either making him look like uh, you know, a man according to his, you know, taking the divine nature and making him like corruptible man, or by making creatures, animals, making God like us in some way, shape, or form, is what Paul is talking about here. That's what image making is. It's taking the divine nature and trying to make it like us. That's what image making and idol making is about. Okay. And we see this even brought out uh, you know, even as the Ten Commandments were being given, or or even after they were given, we see very clearly uh, the people of Israel just imme- almost immediately just throwing up their hands and saying, "You know what? Who cares? I'm I, I don't I don't want anything to do with God's law." Exodus thirty two four through six, and he received this is Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what were they doing? And we see clearly here that this is worshiping God because of what Aaron says here um, about making an offering to the Lord. And it's L-O-R-D, all caps. So this is God's covenant name. We are making an offering to the Lord. We're worshiping God using images, right? This is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So essentially what Aaron did was he made an image of God, right? Made an image of the invisible God and said, we're going to worship this image. This is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So you can see here, God was angry with Aaron and frustrated with him because this was not according to the worship that God had declared to his people and how they were to worship. This was not according to that law. They did what they wanted, and God was angry. It wasn't a mere making of the images that was the problem. It was making an image of God uh, for worship, and that became uh, a problem. Okay. Uh, and then we, you know, we jump down to Acts 17, 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. This is Paul on Mars Hill talking to uh, the Greeks about the invisible God, right? You know, he had just got done saying, in him we live and move and have our being. This is the unknown God that they had made us a memorial of. And he's telling them who this God was. And this God is not like us, right? The divine nature is not like us. And he's not something we can shape into our 
So, so in other words, you shouldn't be doing that, right? This violates the second commandment. God is divine, so we can't ascribe anything creaturely to him, or we have made an image of him for worship. And John Gill in Exodus 24, he talks about how image making is talking about making images for man to worship. It's not merely about image making. If you look at his Bible commentary on the subject, he talks about this. And our own confession uh, even talks about this too. Chapter 22, per, from chapter 22, paragraph 1, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And Brother Jim Renahan in uh, his wonderful commentary right here, Judicious Impartial Reader, again, get it. If you don't have this, this is absolutely crucial for any uh, reform person to have in their library. Uh, he talks about this, page 424. He indicates that this discussion includes making images for worship. Okay. And, you know, if you look at Keech's catechism, Keech was one of the signers of the Second London Baptist Confession. Question 57, what is forbidden in the Second Commandment? Answer, the Second Commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Romans 1, 22, 23, Deuteronomy 4, 15, and 16 are cited here in terms of what you're to make, not to make images of, which have to do with making images of the divine essence. And then you have Hercules Collins, another signer of the Second London, in his, uh, the Orthodox Catechism. Question 107, what is God's will for us in the Second Commandment? Answer, that we in no way make an, any image of God, nor worship him in any other way that he is commanded in his word. Question 108, may we then not make any images at all? Answer, God neither ought and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. <clears throat> Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. So you can see he even goes seemingly a little beyond Keech and kind of breaks it down between making images of God versus making images of creatures as long as you're not uh, worshiping them. But the basic premise that you see here is that the divine essence is not to be made into an image uh, and worshipped at, at the very least, right? That much is, uh, I think, uh, true here. And the, the general principle of not making the divine essence into uh, an image to worship, I think, is, is generally what you find here. Um. And I'm aware of like Turton's discussion as well. Ms. Turton and his institutes, he talks, I think he even goes maybe even a step further in saying that you shouldn't have any kind of uh, you know, images, at least religious images in sacred places. And this was, he was talking against the Lutherans who thought, hey, you don't need to worship these images, but if you have sacred image, uh, images in sacred places, it's okay. And Turton said, no, that's not the case. Um, I don't, Honestly, I don't know where I'd fall in that particularly, but uh, I think it's just worth noting. You know, there seems to have been a core understanding of of these, uh, you know, of the second commandment, but its application may have fallen in different places uh, throughout the tradition. But the general principle is we don't make images of the divine essence uh, and especially don't make images to worship them. Right. 
And that's really what the second commandment uh, is is talking about here. So, you know, looking at all the biblical data and looking at some of the historical data, um, you know, my personal conclusion is that merely making an image of Jesus, merely making an image of Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of other things that could come with that, but merely making an image of Jesus does not violate the principle of what shouldn't be created and why it shouldn't be created, as we have seen in these texts about the second commandment. Uh, and I, I think I've at least demonstrated that at a basic level. Again, I'm, I'm being careful with my language here. When I say merely creating an image of Jesus, I, there's a lot of other things to consider when we're talking about making uh, images of Jesus. But I, I don't think that merely creating an image of Jesus violates uh, the principle here. So in addition to... Uh, you know, the, the scriptures really forbidding this understanding of, uh, you know, forbidding the making of the divine essence into, uh, you know, into an image and worshiping it. I think Chalcedon helps us here when we're talking about making images of Jesus, the incarnate one, as it relates to, uh, you know, idolatry. I think we do have to remember Jesus, although he was unified, the two natures are unified in one person, the natures were never mixed. The natures are distinct, and we have to keep that in mind. That's Chalcedonian Christology, uh, and I think we have to be consistent with that. Those two natures are distinct, and we have to treat them respective to one another. We can't treat them as one or treat them interchangeably. The only thing we can do is say that the Word had, you know, acts according to one nature and acts according to the other nature, right? And the word is nothing but the divine essence, right? It's nothing but God. But in terms of which nature the word is acting according to, we say that he acts according to that nature. We never treat them as the same, and we never conflate them. We have to be very careful uh, with that. So I think when we're talking about making images of Jesus, uh, we have to treat Jesus's human nature as truly human, okay? Since we've already established that Exodus 20, 4 through 6, is talking about making images of the divine essence and worshiping that, I think we can safely say that just merely making an image of Jesus's human nature is not violating that principle. If we're going to use the principle of the second commandment to argue that we shouldn't make images of Jesus, we got to make sure we understand the second commandment properly first, then go back to that issue. And I'd Unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't, uh, you know, have a proper understanding of the second uh, commandment. Okay. But if Jesus's human nature is really distinct from his divine, it can't be properly said to be the divine essence, or we've now mixed the natures, which violates biblical categories, given the verses about what can't be made is about the divine and not about the creature. Okay. So, if we're able to speak respectively of both natures, right? We speak of things according to Jesus's human nature and according to his divine nature, but we never speak of them together, right? As mixed. Uh, then I don't see why we can't do that with images, given the, uh, the establishment of what the second commandment is actually about. Now, uh, another interesting point, and this gets, this is a little bit more technical and I actually came across this yesterday. Of course, I didn't bring it down with me. Uh, but Adonis Vidu's book, The Divine Missions, on pages 86 and 87, and again, I, I completely forgot to bring it down to my studio with me, 
so I won't be able to read it. However, uh, I found this very interesting. I wasn't even trying to look for this. I was just reading and it just I thought this would be this would be helpful. Aquinas's discussion, Thomas Aquinas's discussion on the beatific vision, uh, I think is helpful here. Now, Aquinas wasn't talking about the second commandment per se, but I think that the principle that he lays out here, I think, can be applied in this way, or at least help us in kind of uh, informing this discussion about uh, image making. Okay. Now, Aquinas's understanding of the beatific vision is that we would be able to see God in his essence as he is, um, you know, once we are uh, fully perfected uh, at, you know, at the end of time, so to speak. So we'll be able to know God as he is, right? We'll be able to see him immediately without any mediation. We'll be able to see the divine essence uh, as he is according to Aquinas's account. And before that, in our imperfect state, we have to form an image in our mind of what a thing is. I can't know a thing by a thing itself. I have to abstract the form of it in my mind and, in effect, make some sort of image or similitude or likeness of it um, without the thing itself entering my mind, right? And Vidu uses the example of a tree. I'm, I, I understand what a tree is because of the form of it. Uh, essentially, but the tree itself isn't going into my mind, uh, thankfully, and I'm understanding it in that way. I'm abstracting its form from its existence. Okay, we can't do that with God, and that's what Aquinas said. We can't do that with God. The divine essence, because God is simple, God is not composed of essence and existence like creatures are. You can't, you know, take the form of it, which is the form of the matter that we put into our minds and abstract it from it actually existing in front of you. Those two things come together and make the thing that it is uh, with God. That's not the case because God is his existence because of his uh, sim simple nature. So we have to be very uh, careful about that in making that uh, distinction. So from a human standpoint, if the disciples saw Jesus and they perceived him, you know, if we're using Aquinas' epistemology here, they were looking at Jesus with a distinction between form and existence. They were making a picture of him in their mind to be able to ascertain who he is and know him um, and abstracting that from the existence of the actual human nature of Jesus. Of course, you can't do that with the divine nature or you're going to run into problems, which is, you know, is, I think, gets into the discussion about making God in our own image. God can't be composed of those things. So if we make an image of a thing that we can ascertain and know, uh, now we're making God uh, creaturely, which distracts us from the one true God who is unknowable at the end of the day, in and of himself, uh, at least right now, in our creaturely state. Because we know God through creation. We know God through his word. We know God through his effects. We don't know the divine essence directly. Uh, and the scriptures are very clear um, about that. So I think that his discussion of his, in his epistemology of knowing something and how we can ascertain something creaturely versus how we can know and ascertain the divine essence, I think is uh, was really helpful for this discussion and the distinction between those two things um, I think could be helpful here. 
I mean, if the disciples were doing this, right, if Aquinas's epistemology is true, and the disciples who saw Jesus with their own eyes were making this form existence distinction in their own mind in order to have any knowledge of the human nature of Jesus, I mean, they're making an image of Jesus in their own mind. Or were they in sin because they were making a mere image of Jesus to know him, uh, you know, just by seeing him in their own minds? Of course not. Yet, if merely making an image of Jesus is a violation of the second commandment, then just seeing him would be a problem, which we know is not the case uh, from what the Gospels are saying. So I think Aquinas's categories here are helpful in this discussion. Again, his his understanding was really about the beatific vision, not the second commandment per se. But I think that the discussion here is is helpful. And I found it really helpful when I was reading. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm using that in uh, the discussion today. Now, so, you know, maybe a potential objection that might come up, uh, you know, just to making a mere image of Jesus in the first place. Uh, since, and I'm not saying that anyone is necessarily saying this, I'm just trying to anticipate, you know, an objection. But since there is a unification of the natures, that means that creating an image of his human nature is a betrayal of both natures. Okay. Now, if someone were to come in and say something like this, I think this is problematic. Again, the distinction we have to make between the natures and treating them respective to themselves in relation to what the second commandment is actually about. Uh, there is a sense that Jesus does reveal the Father, right? He does reveal the essence of God in some sense, not directly, but uh, in some sense he does, right? John 14, 9. But it cannot be said that he's revealing uh, the Father's essence literally for us to see, as if we can behold uh, the essence um, of God. Jesus is revealing who the Father is to our understanding, and John Gill also follows in this. He says, quote, not with the eyes of his body, but with the eyes of his understanding that he uh, that has uh, he that has beheld the perfections of the Godhead in me. So in other words, we are seeing the Father, we're seeing the Father through our understanding and not through literally seeing him. And this means that Jesus, according to his human nature, can't be said to be revealing the actual essence of God, but reveals to our understanding who the Father is. Since Jesus says God is one of this is one in the same as the Father in his uh, essence. Okay, so therefore, in my estimation, it can't be said that making a mere image of Jesus is picturing uh, the divine essence. And so saying that the unification of nature is, is revealing it's making an image of god again i think i think is is problematic for those reasons and what we stated um already we have to treat them uh as you know as as distinct and it's interesting too when you look at the beatific vision i was reading a little bit about uh, john owen john owen did not take thomas's view of the beatific vision that we're going to see god as he is literally as a we're going to see God by virtue of the divine essence, but that we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that is the beatific vision. So that, you know, this that seems to flow along with what is being uh, talked about here in John 14. Now, kind of wrapping things up here a little bit. I know I've been rambling on for about an hour, but wrapping things up a little bit. Um, should Christians watch The Chosen? You know, if you're watching this, you probably came here just to answer that one question, right? Should Christians watch this show? Based on everything that we've said and in my own research and, and looking at these things, for me, I would say it depends. Okay, that 
You know, I think some people might just want like a hard no. And there were even some people, even when I posted it, they're just like, no, easy answer. No. Yeah. Or something like that. I, for me, I would say it probably depends. Okay. So we've already established that making a mere image of Jesus isn't a problem. Okay. Which simply an actor portraying Jesus, or at least just taking on the assumption of being Jesus, uh, it would be consistent with. But I, I really think that the issue should be around not the second commandment per se, but around whether or not the show is going to be misleading. And we talked about this earlier. I think that this is the biggest issue that we have to deal with here. Is the show going to be misleading? And, and I think coupled with that, is the show going to run into issues with the authority of scripture and its sufficiency? I think those are the two issues that we have to focus on. The second commandment, I think, comes into play uh, if we start identifying, um, you know, uh, Jesus with these things as it relates to the divine essence. Then we have, uh, I think, issues here. Um, and if we're, you know, just simply engaging in pure idolatry of worshiping a man and saying, well, that's God um, and you know, that's the God man right there and turning to that and giving our attention to it when we should be giving our attention um, to God. Because idolatry takes on many different forms. It's not just image making. That's just one aspect of idolatry. We see that in Romans 1, another form of idolatry. Uh, Paul gives an example of homosexuality where they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, where their desires are for the wrong things or twisted desires. It's not just image making or worshiping an idol. Um, so there's different forms of idolatry that can take place outside of, you know, what uh, image making has been associated with. But I think the misleading nature um, of that tends to happen with these kind of shows, I think, is uh, in, in the, its relation to Scripture, I think, is really where the discussion needs to start. The second commandment, I think, can come into play um, in that discussion, but I don't think that should be front and center. I think even before you get to that discussion, you're already going to have to deal with these issues of scripture sufficiency and whether this is misleading or not. And I think by and large, you're going to find that these shows do tend to mislead just because of the the nature of liberties that uh, have to be taken in a lot of cases. Um, I, it might be possible that you can create a show that is so rigid uh, to what is explicitly or that you can drive, you know, by good and necessary consequence from the text, you might be able to do that. I don't know. You might be able to do that in a way that isn't misleading or that uh, doesn't mislead you if you're not uh, a strong Christian. Um, so I think that, at, you know, there has to be some weighing of your own personal strength as it relates to understanding what the scripture says. Your conscience has to come into play here. Um, and whether or not this is going to, uh, you know, mislead you, maybe those you're watching with. I mean, there's just a lot of things to consider. It's not just a simple yes or no answer. Um, so, you know, it, that might not be the answer that you were looking for when you came here today listening to this episode. Um, personally, I think that for the majority of people, I think it would be best if these things were avoided. And I think we'd be better off not having any shows or media of Jesus in the first place, again, because of the mis the, the tendency for those portrayals, I think, to mislead. 
we're not going to be any worse off without them. We have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures and the sufficient uh, teaching that is there to be able to help us to understand for every good work what we need in order uh, to understand Jesus for our sanctification, for salvation, for obeying his word. All of those things are going to be there that we need. Um, so if those things were to go away, it's probably better if they do uh, for all of our sakes. But again, I, I think it depends on terms of whether watching these things is beneficial in any way or, or is going to be sin, I think is going to depend. Right? If we're talking about what should Christians be doing from a moral standpoint, um, I think it's going to depend on a lot of factors. But I hope that gives at least some principles here that we can use when we're coming across these different types of, of media and medium, that we can analyze these things in light of Scripture, analyze these things in light of the principles that are in Scripture, and I think that can be helpful for us as we uh, you know, are navigating Christian entertainment, which in my estimation I think uh, can be worse than secular entertainment because of the nature of sacred things that tend to be twisted and uh, portrayed in Christian entertainment. But anyways, I hope this has been helpful. Um, again, might not be the answer you were looking for, but I want to give principles that can help people to be able to navigate these particular difficult issues. They're not easy things to, uh, to work through. We shouldn't just jump on the bandwagon with the rest of the Christian community on this show or whatever the case might be. Uh, but we also shouldn't just have a knee-jerk reaction to it either. We should analyze these things discerningly in the eyes of Scripture. Anyways, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, thank you for joining today, and I hope you have a great rest of your Thanksgiving weekend if you're in the uh, the U.S., and just a good Lord's Day tomorrow. And Lord willing, we will be back next week. Thank you very much.